Let's turn in the scriptures to 2 Peter chapter 2, Peter's second letter and the second chapter. I was just interacting yesterday with a couple who had been here at Tri-County this past week for the first time, and uh, they were asking me what's our approach to teaching, and I'm glad that they were concerned about what our approach to teaching is. And I said, well, let me tell you what we don't do, and that'll help me explain what we do. I said, I don't ever want to start with a burden from within my heart and find a Bible passage that confirms my burden and preach my burden and use the Bible as kind of an add-on to get my point across. I said, instead, what I want to do all the time is I want to focus, whether it's a small passage or a big passage, I want to focus on a, on a passage and understand what God's burden is and then make God's burden my burden so that when I teach, I am trying to clearly convey to the congregation and feed the congregation with God's agenda not with my agenda. That is a definition, essentially, of expository preaching. It's what one pastor says. It's when you make the main point of the passage the main point of your sermon. It's exposing to the congregation what is in the text. I'm not trying to tack God's word onto my burden. I'm trying to find out what God's burden is and bring my message into line with it. I share that this morning because you could say... Joe, this is a strange message. Why are you preaching this? The reason I'm preaching it this morning is because it's God's word. It's God's burden for us as we're working through the letters of Peter over the last year. And uh, in the gospel according to Mark, we're trying to make God's agenda the agenda of the morning. So we're in 2 Peter. This is now the second of what I think will be four messages in this letter. Um. We have learned from the center of the first chapter, verses 12 through 15 of chapter 1, that Peter, Jesus' lead apostle, was about ready to die, and before he dies, he writes this letter as like his, his deathbed burdens. These, these chapters contain his dying reminders. He uses the concept of reminder at least three times in that, in that paragraph. He says, Before I die, I want to put in your mind remembrances. And last week, we saw his first reminder was, the Bible isn't fiction. That was his his heavy first reminder in the letter. The Bible isn't fiction. And today, we're going to encounter the second reminder. Now, I started last week saying life is full of reminders. And this week, I'm going to start in a similar way but I want to demonstrate that there is a certain kind of reminder that is the second issue in the letter. Our world is full of reminders that often take the form of warnings. Warning is a specific kind of reminder. And hearing and heeding warnings is an indispensable facet of maturity. There are governmental warnings, 
like stoplights and speed limits. There are school warnings about drinking and drugs and even waiting too long to start a research paper. There are parental warnings about looking both ways before crossing the street, eating too much dessert. These warnings protect, right? During our first year of marriage, Hannah and I got a coupon in the mail for 99-cent Jamocha shakes at Arby's. You could get, the little coupon said, up to six per customer. So, one warm, rainy night in the early fall of 2005, we went up to Arby's here on 20, and we did something we had never done. We got two each. (laughs) On the way home, we were driving our little Ford Focus, we literally said to each other, we're doing something our parents never let us do. (laughs) We're having two. And about an hour after we got home, both of us literally threw up. (laughs) We've never forgotten it. We now laugh about it. We were not laughing that evening. But reminders often take the form of warnings. And wherever there is danger, warnings are not only necessary, but they're loving. All right? This is true regarding the most important issue in life. The most important issue in life is what are you going to do with Jesus? Is Jesus God's chosen king who's going to rule forever on earth? Is Jesus the only savior who by his death and resurrection offers salvation to all who take refuge in him? Is is he the only way that you can be cleansed of your sin and your heart be changed and you be granted eternal life in the kingdom? What are you going to do with Jesus? If that's the most important matter in life, then the most necessary and the most loving warnings pertain to that. And that's what Peter does here in chapter 2. One pastor Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones described 2 Peter 2 as, I'm quoting him, one of the most terrible and terrifying chapters in the entire Bible. He says, anyone who enjoys reading a chapter like this must surely be abnormal. And yet, at the same time, he said, even though no one enjoys chapters like this one, it's crucial that we study and we teach all of the Bible, not just the portions we're comfortable with. So let's read 2 Peter 2. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive teachings, destructive heresies, even denying the master, Jesus, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. In their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep, meaning it's certainly going to come. And then Peter gives three illustrations to emphasize the certainty of coming judgment for those who reject God and certain salvation for those who belong to him. 
Here's his first illustration, verse 4. For if God didn't spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, I think he's referring here to the original angelic rebellion after which God consigned many demons to the prison. Verse 5 is the second illustration. And if he didn't spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others on the ark when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Third illustration, verse 6. And if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked there in Sodom, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. You can see the three ifs. If that's what happened to the angels, if that's what happened to the world in Noah's day, if that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah, then verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Bold and willful. They don't tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Even angels, though greater in might and power, don't pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, just like irrational animals, creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they're ignorant, they'll also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They've followed the way of Balaam, a false prophet you can read about in Numbers the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained that prophet's madness. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he's enslaved. For if, after they've escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they're again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. Here he's describing, I think, professing Christians who seem for a time to experience the cleansing power of the gospel and then they turn away from all of it and they return to living as if they're their own authority and they return to living for their own pleasure. I tried that, I've been there, done that, no more there. He says, verse 21, it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than knowing it, to afterward turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. He's quoting Proverbs twenty-six, eleven. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. That's chapter 2. Notice that this portion of the letter doesn't end 
happy. It ends heavy. We should always beware of ministries that kind of spin everything to be happy, right? In this second letter, Peter knows he's going to die soon. And he gives here in the second chapter his second reminder. It is a reminder that Christians must keep in their minds all throughout life. Here's how I'd word his second reminder. Beware bogus preachers. The whole chapter is a description of bogus preachers. All right? I want to unpack the chapter by asking and answering three questions about bogus preachers. The first one is, what makes them so difficult to spot? The second, why are they so dangerous? And third, what do they actually look like in real life? Those are the three questions that I want to try to answer. The first question is, what makes bogus preachers so difficult to spot? Well, spotting them would be easy if they didn't claim to be Christians. But verse 1 says, Peter says, these bogus preachers are among you. He says in that same verse, they secretly teach against Jesus. And in verse 2, they encourage sensuality. In other words, just stating it simply, what's so difficult about bogus preachers is that they profess to be followers of Jesus. The way that they deny Jesus is not obvious, and their teaching feels right. It just feels so right. I put it simply like this. They're deceptive, they're discreet, and they're desirable. What they say is appealing. It's what makes them so difficult to spot. The second question, why are bogus preachers so dangerous? And here's where we strike right at the main theme of this second chapter. They are dangerous because they're going to face God's eternal condemnation. And those who follow what these bogus preachers teach and how these bogus preachers live are going to face the same end. That's really the central idea of 2 Peter 2. It's the main reason we should beware bogus preachers because they're going to face eternal destruction and because those who follow them face the same dangerous end. You say, is that really what's going on? Let me just point out six statements. Verse 1, he says, they deny the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, Peter teaches their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Their certain destruction has been determined long ago. Verses 4 through 9, this is where he uses those illustrations of the angels who are consigned to prison and the people in Noah's day who who died in the flood, and then the people of Sodom. He uses these illustrations to say that God knows how to preserve followers of Jesus from judgment, and he knows how to preserve those who reject Jesus' authority for judgment. 
He basically says with three illustrations, make no mistake, judgment is approaching for everyone who rejects Jesus' authority. Judgment is coming. In verses 12 and 13, Peter says that these teachers who speak so flippantly and falsely about sobering truths will be destroyed. And he says, quote, they'll suffer wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Verse 14, he just blurts out this exclamation, accursed children. In other words, bogus preachers will face God's curse rather than his blessing. And verse 17, Peter says, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved for false teachers. As one translation puts it, these false teachers will be imprisoned in the blackest darkness. And it's here that we need to pause and reflect on the subject of eternal judgment. It lies at the very heart of this chapter. I think it's why Lloyd-Jones called this the most terrible chapter. Because when you understand the six references that we've just worked through, you say what awaits bogus Christian preachers is destruction, certain condemnation, judgment, being swept off the face of the earth is the image of verse 6. They're cursed and they'll face the gloom of utter darkness. Hell won't be a party. It'll be a place where individuals who've rejected God are forever alone, forever under God's contempt, and forever unrepentant and resentful at God because they'll think that the treatment God gave them is unjust and unfair. In one sense, those in hell will get exactly what they want. They lived for themselves while alive. They'll live by themselves forever. They didn't want to think about the presence of God while they lived. They'll be cast out away from the presence of God as a judgment. They didn't choose God while they lived. They'll be shut out from the joys of God when they die. Tim Keller, in a very sobering chapter on hell, in his book, The Reason for God, just says hell is the trajectory of the soul. Living a self-absorbed, self-centered life going on forever and ever. There is increasing isolation, denial, delusion, and self-absorption. Hell is not a subject that anyone likes to talk about. But it is a reality that is revealed repeatedly throughout the Bible And no one spoke more about hell than the King of Grace. Jesus is the one who came to die to rescue anyone who would turn to him from hell. If you'll call out to him as Savior and submit to him as Lord, he came to save you from hell. He came to rescue you from that condemnation. We still struggle to accept the Bible's teaching on hell. When we rightly understand the truths of God's sovereignty, that he, our maker, can do whatever he pleases, when we understand the severity of our rebellion, rather than minimizing, you know, to err is human, 
our rebellion is a hideous defiance. When we understand justice, the fact that eternal defiance against an eternal God is deserving of eternal punishment, when we understand things like this, the doctrine of hell comes into more view. And I think maybe the most significant issue is when we understand the beauty and the glory of Jesus, we will see hell rightly. We're made for Jesus. We exist for him. The calling on our lives is to love Jesus with everything we have and are. And if we think that loving everything except Jesus, loving everything more than Jesus, isn't a big deal, it's because we don't think Jesus is a big deal. When we understand the glory of Jesus, we will understand the reality of hell better. Two writers, Christopher Morgan and Robert Peterson, summarize why we struggle with the Bible's teaching on hell. They say it's because we ask the wrong question. The question is not, would a loving God really send people to hell? The question that the Bible asks is, how could a just and holy God ever declare guilty sinners to be clean? What makes these bogus preachers so dangerous and so deserving of Peter's and the Lord's attention here in the second chapter is that they're going to face eternal punishment and those who follow them will as well. It's that serious. So we've answered two questions. Why are they so difficult to spot and what makes them so dangerous? The last question is, what do they look like in real life? Peter uses, I see, four major characteristics throughout the chapter, and I'm going to work through each of them with examples. But I need to say, just before I I work through this last point, my heart in in what I share here in the last bit of the message is not at all like an us versus them sort of a thing. It's not my heart at all. Instead, I feel a bit like a parent with a teenager saying, If you hang out with those friends, you're going to end up in jail. I don't like what I'm talking about. I'm giving warnings like I would to my own children. And I'm giving warnings because this is the word of God in chapter 2. And we have a congregation full of people. Some of you are young believers and you need to hear a parental warning. You hang out with those people and you're going to end up in hell. We've got a congregation full of older believers. And it's interesting that Peter on his deathbed is reminding us of these things. I think that the the pull of certain forms of false teaching gets, gets stronger as we get older and as we get more and more weary with endurance. So many false teachings are so attractive. And and they're so popular, and they sound so right. We need these warnings often. I pray that you'll take them, not from a proud preacher who's trying to make our church look good as opposed to other churches. That's not my agenda at all. Instead, I hope you'll take these things as like a parent who is talking to teenagers saying, be careful. 
If you hang out with those people, it's going to affect your life negatively. The first characteristic is bogus preachers contradict the Bible. The first word of the chapter is but. And it's a single word that contrasts what Peter was saying in the last sentence of chapter 1 with where he goes in the first part of chapter 2. He had just written about true prophets who were carried along by the Holy Spirit so that everything they spoke was in fact the word of God. They didn't make things up. And now he says, these bogus preachers, by contrast, speak their own messages. And these messages are contrary to what God's Spirit has revealed in the Scripture. So if you want to test whether an individual is a false teacher, you simply need to ask, does he or she affirm that the Bible is God's Word, that it's preserved, that it's without error, that it's our ultimate authority? Is this teacher someone who teaches in, in a, a consistent message, a message that's consistent with the clear message of the Scripture? And I'm going to give one example of a bogus preacher who teaches contrary to what the Spirit has revealed. Benny Hinn is a popular faith healer. His TV show, This Is Your Day, is watched every day by millions of people. I said millions. Benny Hinn, his teaching, his writings have numerous problems. Richard Mayhew, in the Master Seminary Journal a few years back, just pointed out he teaches that it's wrong to pray, Lord, your will be done, even though Jesus did. He preaches that God always intends for believers to be healed even though some of the greatest saints of the Bible were unhealed, the Apostle Paul among them. He teaches that believers should command God to heal them. Well, the Bible asks us to ask in prayer. He teaches that faith on the part of the sick person is essential to that person's healing. I wonder what he does with the story of Lazarus. Hin believes that all Christians should be healed from sickness. Yet the Bible teaches that it is God's will that many Christians be sick and that all Christians until the coming of Jesus eventually die. These are obvious direct contradictions that show up in numerous places of Hinn's teaching. Now, if you listen to any one of his broadcasts, you're not going to get these as the main things. You might get one or two of these things in a, in a long segment. You might get hints of them over time. It's very discreet. But he consistently teaches in a way that directly opposes the Scripture. As one pastor, Tim Challies, put it, he's a dangerous deceiver, a fraud, and a charlatan who enriches himself at the expense of countless others. Bogus preachers contradict the Bible. Secondly, they deny Jesus. And this can happen in several ways. They can say, Jesus isn't God, he's just a good teacher. Or they can say, he's not the only way to God, there are many different ways to God. Even to the chagrin of many 
conservative Roman Catholics, the current Pope takes this view. In 2013, his dialogue said, God will forgive the individual who follows his own conscience, even if that individual is an atheist. You can deny Jesus by saying he's not the only way to God. You can also deny that Jesus died as our substitute. This is very popular today. Some people want to suggest these are evangelical people who suggest that what happened on the cross, if you understand it as substitution, was the equivalent of divine child abuse. Other people say, we don't need a substitute for sin that damages people's psyche. You tell people that they're sinners and it leads them to live with a complex of shame. The late Mormon prophet and president Thomas Monson denied that Jesus is God and he denied that Jesus died as our substitute. I talked about Roman Catholic. I talked about Mormon teachers who who deny Jesus in different ways. The most popular so-called evangelical pastor in America denies Jesus by refusing to mention sin. He refuses to mention hell, and he believes that there are many ways to God other than Jesus. Joel Osteen is the man I'm talking about. He pastors America's largest congregation, Lakewood in Houston. His Easter 2016 interview with Tracy Smith on CBS Sunday Morning He was asked directly, why don't you preach about hell? And he said, people feel guilty enough. I'm not going to quote him at length. Osteen also teaches that there are many paths to God, that people in many different religions might be following Jesus even without realizing it. And you'll find that in his Oprah interview, January 2012, and in his interview with former Disney CEO Michael Eisner in 2008 denies that Jesus is the only way to God. Bogus preachers deny Jesus. And it's happening constantly in supposedly gospel preaching churches. Third, bogus preachers are marked by immorality. They encourage immorality. Peter says... They're characterized, verses 2 and 7, by shameful immorality. Verse 7, by lustful desires. They indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight, verse 13. They have never satisfied eyes, verse 14. They're slaves to corrupt living, verse 19. Simply put, many supposedly Christian teachers are marked by sexual ethics, either in their lives or in their teaching, they're marked by sexual ethics that are opposite of what Jesus taught. And so a simple question in this third category is just, does this teacher promote and model Jesus's sexual ethic? That sexuality is a very good gift of God created to be enjoyed exclusively between a husband and wife who've committed themselves to one another in marriage. Does this person promote Jesus' sexual ethic? An example of someone who denies Jesus' sexual ethic and teaches against it is Rob Bell. He is the founder and former pastor of the 10,000-member congregation in Michigan, Mars Hill Bible Church. Over the last 20 years, he's taught that the Bible is not our ultimate authority. He denies that Jesus had to suffer as our substitute. 
And in his famous book, Love Wins, he teaches universalism, that every person will eventually be saved. It's not surprising then that in his 2014 book called, 2014 book called The Zimzoom of Love, A New Way of Understanding Marriage, he teaches, quote, marriage, whether gay or straight, is a gift to the world because the world needs more love, not less love. And loneliness is not good for the world. He also thinks, I have this quote on the screen, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who love each other and just want to go through life together. Do you see what he's doing? The 2,000 year old letters he's talking about are the Bible. If you follow the Bible, you will be increasingly irrelevant in your culture, and you'll not really care about people who just need love in whatever form. Many pastors and theologians have evaluated Rob Bell according to the scripture, and Sam Storms put it very succinctly. He said, Bell's reasoning is unhistorical, unwise, damaging to society, and personally damning. It's sober. It's true. The fourth facet of a bogus preacher's character is that they're marked by greed. Jesus modeled and taught contentment. And yet the most popular voices in Christianity today throughout the world are modeling and teaching that God's will for people right now is that you experience health, wealth, and prosperity. I offer just one example. T.D. Jakes is the pastor of the Potter's House in Dallas. It is attended by 17,000 people weekly. He denies the Trinity. He unashamedly glories in his $1.7 million home. He describes his nice cars. He shows off his expensive clothes. And his church's doctrinal statement quotes Isaiah 53, by his wounds we have been healed. And yet it says, we believe that it is God's will to heal and deliver his people today just like he did in the days of the apostles. It is by the stripes of Jesus that we are healed, delivered, made whole. We now have authority over sickness, disease, demons, curses, and every circumstance in life which he includes poverty. It's really interesting that Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned each one to our own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. That in Isaiah 53, his stripes heal our sins primarily. And the one thing that's missing from their church's doctrinal statement is that we are healed from sin and instead the emphasis is on being healed from sickness and from poverty what he teaches is actually opposite what jesus taught jesus taught that his stripes heal us from sin now and won't heal us entirely from sickness until we enter the kingdom jesus taught that storing up treasure on earth is empty 
and that we should manage our wealth in order to invest it for the advance of the gospel. Peter would say, beware, right? Now these examples we've considered, this is not something that I enjoy doing. It's not something that I plan to do every week. If, honestly, if this is like red meat, and you're like, we need more of this, we need more of this, we need more of this. I'd say, listen to Lloyd-Jones. I think something might be abnormal about you. We don't delight in exposing false teaching. This stuff is grievous to us. These are not people who have a few slight different interpretations than we do about the Bible. And these are not people who are like, you know, often some closet in some remote part of the earth and they have little congregations of, you know, 100 or 200 people and a, and a few thousand people online. These are popular preachers who are influencing millions of people a day claiming to be Christians while directly contradicting Jesus and the apostles. And this is Peter's dying reminder. Beware bogus preachers. Peter basically says, if you look at the four characteristics that I zeroed in on from the chapter, does this teacher contradict the clear message of Scripture? Does this teacher deny Jesus as the God-man and the only mediator who died as the Lamb? Third, does this teacher think that the Bible's sexual ethic needs some updating? Fourth, does this teacher promote the accumulation of wealth as God's goal for you in this life? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then it does not matter how nice or popular that individual is. You're looking at someone who, according to Scripture, is in eternal danger and is leading others to eternal destruction. That's Peter's dying reminder. Christian, beware bogus preachers. Father, I pray that you would sober us today and that we would remember, even as we struggle through all of the trials of our lives this year, there are going to be so many people promising an easier way out So many people promising things that we want to hear. Wealth, healing. So many people who are promising that we can just stop the fight against our own sin nature. Stop the fight against our own wayward sexual desires. And just give in to them. And you would affirm them. We're going to hear people teaching these things that we want to hear because life sounds so much better if we had more money, if we didn't have these pains that were were grieving us, if we didn't have to keep fighting this war. Lord, your word is our guide, and yet we so often struggle with it. It seems to our culture like your word is toxic and narrow, And we're fighting these voices in our heads and in the culture around us so often. I just pray, God, that you would help us heed 
this critical reminder from the dying apostle. And I pray that we would cling to Jesus, unpopular as it is, unpopular as he is, hard as it is, grievous as it is, that we would follow Jesus no matter what. Strengthen our grip on him today. I pray that some in here who are wrestling through their own religious convictions would turn to Jesus for the first time today and commit their lives to him, call out on him to be Savior and Lord. I pray that they would be saved and that they would start this arduous but wonderful journey. I pray that you would shape our congregation and make us a powerful influence in our community because we walk according to your word and according to your son. For his glory and our good and our community's good, I pray. Amen.